welcome uh, to the Good Point podcast. Thank you. Our first guest. Thank you. It's yes. an honor. <laughs> yeah. Um, because we are all worried about everything and the end of times, we thought it would be good to do some extra episodes about not Corona. And so we invited you to talk about a movie. And you chose The Wild Blue Yonder. Yeah. Um, yeah. I th- it was nice to find it on uh, YouTube, like the full movie available there. It's, uh, I don't know, it's like, um, I think of that movie quite a lot um, because it's such a, a simple movie in a weird way. It's like yeah. such a simple a simple way with like it's very dramatic and it's a, the, the soundtrack is very yeah i've been trying to find the budget how much it costs to make the movie oh and i couldn't find it i couldn't find it it said that the movie made less than seven thousand dollars in box office revenues wow so but when you see the credits roll there's still like maybe 20 30 people that worked on it yeah and i wonder if all the footage that was shot if that was all just like uh royalty free we could just use that probably so maybe we can introduce the movie a little bit because i don't think a lot of people saw it um so it's a a sci-fi movie basically but it's it consists out of mostly found footage and uh one uh alien actually narrating a story um but it's kind of um confusing in how it's positioned in time so it's like uh it's positioned in uh, from a perspective of viewing humanity from the future, as I understand. Yeah, and, and the movie starts with uh, the actor Brad Dourif. Some people might know from uh, David Lynch movies, from Dune and from Blue Velvet, uh, from other movies. He's kind of like a... He's in a lot of movies, and you see his face, and you're like, oh, I've seen him in a lot of movies, but you can't really pinpoint it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he he's kind of... He's dressed really shabby, and he has a frizzy hair in a ponytail. He's like a very uncool-looking guy at a sort of in front of a dilapidated mall, and he talks about his journey from many galaxies away coming here. Yeah, so it's but it's it's uh, such a normal circumstance, and of course we're not talking about Corona or anything, but um, still, I think it's a. Uh, kind of important to realize that it's such a uh, simple version of now that this movie manifests itself in. So by now, actually, if you watch it, it's 2005. So by now, you already recognize certain things are are dated or are... You would know when this takes place already. You know that it's like a while ago, just from the artifacts of the video or from the recordings. But, um, or maybe the the cars you would see or other things. Um, But what I like about it is that it's such a simple twist on now. So it's just introduces like a completely new uh, interpretation of uh, images you already know, or you already, you're already accustomed to. So there's no special effects or it's just the story or the narration that suggests uh, the whole yeah, narrative. just just to ex- explain to people who haven't seen the film, I think Werner Herzog does a lot of movies where he narrates himself, and uh, uh, people know his voiceover with the German accent. And in this case, he, there's an actor kind of taking that role, where he finds a lot of 
uh, archival footage from NASA and from underwater exploration in the Antarctic. And then the alien talks about, is, is really in many superlatives trying to explain how large the universe is yeah. and, and uh, how impossible it is. And then the story goes that it, their planet was dying, so they had to find another planet. And he's sort of lamenting that everyone thinks of aliens as heroes, but actually they were terrible. And they tried to build a city on Earth, and it failed. And he says, we all suck. So it's kind of an anti-sci-fi movie. Normally, we think of a sci-fi movie of a, a technically superior race coming to take us. And here it's it's the opposite, and there's there's no special effects, but instead he shows footage of. Uh, uh, I, I'm trying to make a visual for the listener, but it it's like you see people, uh, scuba divers underwater in the Antarctic, and they're under ice. But the narrator says, uh, the sky is frozen and the atmosphere is liquid helium. Yeah. So your mind sort of creates a, a, another planet while you're actually looking at footage from Earth. Yeah, but then, for example, they also suggest, like, he also starts to uh, explain, like, actual uh, uh, scientific theories. So there's an actual scientist, like a, a human scientist. Well, I mean, yeah. the actor is also human, but, like, uh, from the interpretation that he's an alien, there's actually a human scientist talking and explaining the potential of wormholes and potentially traveling through wormholes and chaos theory. And then the science actually becomes a part of this fictional story. And then yeah. that becomes a part of like seeing humanity from your future where humanity starts to be able to travel and, and as a kind of a scenario potentially. And I think we live in this scenario now with like a person like Elon Musk trying to see if we could all travel to Mars or other explorations and commercial explorations but um, that in the story or the, the alien actually also narrates that there was that how impossible this human endeavor was and then starts to kind of fic fantasize basically on, uh, but then that gets confusing in the movie or at least it's, uh, um, how do you say this? Like uh, he would... Um, Basically, he starts to describe how humans would travel away from Earth and like how Earth becomes this kind of sanctuary, almost like a park for humanity, um, which yeah. actually also that kind of happens in Star Trek, for example, that that planet Earth is like this kind of sanctuary for humanity and like humans disperse over the rest of the universe. Yeah, that seems to be a recurring theme for Herzog, that he basically thinks humans are disgusting and nature is better left alone. Yeah, and especially that comes back when... At the end of the story, the humans come back, but they mistimed. So they actually thought they were away for a couple of years, but they were away for 800, uh, 800 years, for like eight centuries. Yeah. And then they come back, and then the, the planet is basically abandoned, and nothing's there anymore, and we don't know what actually happened. So that could be anything. or All traces of any city are gone. It's just wild nature. Yeah. And yeah. they can only land on a certain plateau. That's the only only place where they could land. And this suggestion of like this kind of it's true, like the, the, the certain disgust of humanity, but also the kind of pretentiousness of almost wanting to escape or pollute the rest of the universe. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so bad here. Let's make a mess everywhere else. Yeah, yeah. But it, 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 I I thought the. The plot is not even that relevant, but there's a, a bunch of themes that we could break down. Uh, and, and one of the themes is he's, he's I don't know if you agree, but uh, 
one of the themes is the the idea of the grandness of space. Like he's trying to explain, you don't just travel in a spaceship. No, it's like you have to breed in the spaceship, and by the time you're by, at generation eight or ten, they've forgotten what the mission was. Yeah. 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 So he. I mean, so it's. Do oh, you mean like almost like an intergenerational thinking, or like thinking like how how yeah. insignificant you are with all your pretentiousness, or something? And 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 the the idea of you need some kind of myth or narrative for for the. Uh, next generations to keep going on the same mission because they might have different priorities by that time. Yeah. Yeah, he simplifies it too by describing kind of like he would start at the Stone Age and he starts to describe humanity's efforts and then he ends actually at like uh, Marilyn Monroe, the World Wars, uh, like World Wars, Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley. And then he said like, yeah, and then you get there and then you only covered 15% of your travels <laughs> yeah. to Alpha Centurion. And then, well, uh, how do you yeah, avoid I thought that wars and yeah? Yeah, I, I always thought that's something that's much easier in writing than in cinema to describe. Uh, for example, if you would describe in a novel an amazing piece of music, you don't have to play the piece of music. You could just say, "This is the best uh, melody ever written, and, and anyone who hears it will never forget it, and it becomes part of your soul and whatever." But when you make a movie, you have to actually play that song, and you're like. That melody is not that special. So I think in this movie he's playing with not showing too much and describing what it means to have... Because most sci-fi movies, if you want to show a difficult uh, uh, voyage, you would show the actual voyage. I don't understand I what that's you mean. The, if you would show the voyage? So, yeah, like in, in any movie you would show the... The hardship visually, so you would use a lot of special effects to show the grandness of the universe. And in this movie, instead of showing a spaceship and generations and people dying and all that stuff, instead you hear scientists talking about time travel and wormholes. And so it's a very different approach of showing the grandness of the universe. Yeah, but then there's this there's this exotism through the music again. Then there's like actually this like the the almost like what is it the flute like the, almost like this arabian flute and then there's like this even the singing i don't even know what language that was mm -hmm. i tried to research what language that was and i didn't recognize it but like uh and there's this weird exotism of like and then the the under the ice footage it becomes very uh illustrational it becomes very illustrational when yeah. they're talking about wormholes and then the diver actually has to go through a hole in the ice and then it's yeah, kind of yeah, struggling yeah. to go like how through like how to go through the hole and then you see like a a jellyfish while you hear this like mumbling in a different language which I couldn't place I felt a bit bad about not being able to recognize that but it didn't <laughs> seem arabic or anyway um I've always f thought that Werner Herzog is very good at avoiding pop culture references so it, it seems that he is is such a far out character that he just runs into people in other languages and strange music and it would just never occur to him to play Elvis or the Beatles. Well, this the funny thing was that apparently this was a soundtrack that he just reused from a movie he made earlier. So that's also something I really mm. like, that he just used that soundtrack already before and then he just used yeah, it again. Yeah. So no. I thought that's actually kind of nice. Like you would like the soundtrack so much that you made with someone, you just use it again for a completely different movie. Yeah, and it and it becomes a completely different thing. Yeah. yeah. 
But uh, yeah, the, the movie is available for free on YouTube. That I think some of the lesser-known movies of Herzog are fully. So anyone, if you're listening to this, you could just pause the podcast and sort of skip through it to to have a visual of what we're talking about. Because one of the things that I wanted to talk about with you is sort of the the border between cinema and video art and how Herzog's work still feels like a movie, even though maybe if someone had made this in art school, you would have not thought of this as cinema. Oh, really? Okay. Mm. I wonder, though, because there's such a strong narration and a, and a mise-en-scene, like a placement, and he really, like, he really shows you... Like, for example, the alien stands at this um, crossroad, and he's describing why they positioned this this new city or this new capital there when they tried to make this civilization where nobody showed up and where nothing got sold, yeah. which I also thought was kind of remarkable because it's still based on capitalism <laughs> that nothing, all the merchandise wasn't sold. So they were kind of... Anyway. Yeah, and that's the idea of success. Yes, yeah. exactly. If everything gets sold, yeah. then you're successful. And then... Um, um, but then he really describes like where Congress, also like very much on an American base, of course, like Congress would be there and that's where this would be and that's where the mall would be. And he's basically just, and he compares it to Washington, D.C. And he's really positioning it strongly within like an American kind of understanding of what yeah. culture or what a civilization would need to be. And then... Yeah, shopping and, and government. Yeah, and he really stands in front of this dilapidated mall and he says like that's where the monument would be and he's like... He's 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 positioning himself in time very much, and then he brings you to this other location with a very dramatic kind of view of that thing, of the the underwater world or like the their their home planet. And I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. like, if that would be, yeah. So the definition of cinema compared to video art, or if this would be, it's funny. I haven't talked it, in this it, it's about this for a long time. It's a long time ago that I talked about this definition of cinema, or like when. Well, I I I think it's a feeling. It, it, like sometimes something feels like a movie, even if it's not, and sometimes something feels like art, even if it's not. But he's really trying to tell a story. To me, it's also like really yeah. a very strong narrative, and that makes yeah, it cinema yeah, yeah, yeah. to me too. Like he's really, okay. it's not just like, a, a, you know, like. A, I feel like a lot of people in art school are well. End if, up if you compare this movie to to Grizzly, if if you compare this movie to Grizzly Man, that uh, Grizzly Man also is completely made of found footage. It's a a guy who every summer or winter I can't remember goes to Alaska to live with grizzly bears and he films himself. But the weird thing about it, he he did this for a number of years and at some point he he gets eaten by the bears. And Herzog goes through the entire archive and constructs a movie out of it and narrates it himself. There's a voiceover and he interviews people around it. But the production value is much higher than, than this movie. So um, I think that's much more accessible just purely because of the production value. Um, but, but it's also the story, I'm, I'm right? Like it's also the given. Like you live up, you live up to this moment that he it really becomes dangerous. Like, it becomes this really weird setting. Yeah. But then you really live and up to the, this moment where... And then there's the Timothy Treadwell, the, the guy who keeps going back to the Bears, was a failed actor. So he would bring his camera with him and he would do lots of takes. He really treated it as a filmmaker. So that gave that movie a, a cinematic feeling also. Mm -hmm. 
He was really performing. And in in this case, when you see this the the footage of the scientists talking about the math of the universe and uh, about potential wormholes, they're they're non-actors, absolutely. Yeah, there's even a moment like just an hour or something into the movie, and then there's just you see the scientist looking a bit weird, and then he just sneezes, and that's just <laughs> the sneeze, and then he cuts away to the actor again. That I mean, yeah. it's true. Like that comes close to like video art or like this appropriation of other 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 footage into your narrative yeah. but just because the narrative is so strong i feel like it's cinematic like i feel like it's it's offering yeah, me an yeah. illusion of another space within the and that narrative takes place within that so it's not like uh i don't know if i'm saying that cinematography is by default uh fictional but it's like it should there's this strong well otherwise it becomes documentary cinematography yeah i guess yeah, well, I thought hmm. one of the, the movie District Nine I thought was interesting that they had the idea to do high-end special effects, but then give it a, a home video feeling, just as a layer on top of it. So you render everything perfectly, but then you re-record it on a shitty camera, and then it feels like it really happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, like and Blair Witch so, Project did basically already. Yeah, 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 but then specifically because uh, District Nine is also a sci-fi movie. Um, and also sort of this theme of aliens being losers, not being almighty. Uh, right, right, right. So I was actually, yeah. I, the sci-fi movies I was thinking about was uh, Code 46, the Michael Winterbottom movie. Because that's like a... I didn't see that. That's a movie. So basically that's a movie where there's a future where there's uh, people are structured according to uh, genetics. So like uh, you would have a genetic fault or you would be genetically different but that would mean that you would live somewhere else. But they actually have different locations. And then they actually have to flee a certain part where you would not be allowed anymore, and there would be the wild territory. So it would be like a city, and like uh, outside of the city, like mm. a walled city. But then these protected yeah. environments actually are really beautifully inter- illustrated by them just driving into a tunnel, getting disinfected, or like going through a disinfection kind of thing, and then driving out into a desert. But then it's like, yeah, I think yeah. it's filmed in like Hong Kong and Egypt or something, or like a completely different location. And them just traveling through this tunnel and being in this different location provides this really strong kind of narrative of like seeing this while still you're in two contemporary landscapes, you know, but yeah, just because yeah. they're, they're, they're there. And I think this is what Herzog was doing too. And just by creating these kind of current landscapes that you would actually already know, but by placing them within one narrative it becomes this kind of illustrational thing and he takes you away on this kind of fantasy but at the same time i was also thinking about 28 days later the uh the danny Mm -hmm. boyle movie so like um um how london is then appropriated like after a zombie apocalypse and then they just filmed very early in the morning in an an empty london and then seeing the of course like seeing the footage now of london or seeing these (laughs) updates of like all the empty streets and (laughs) how I am now in Amsterdam, and I think this is... I'm living in the Amsterdam currently that I always wanted to live in, like completely quiet, there's only locals. No tourists. Um, everybody says hi. Uh, it's very weird and creepy, but it's also very beautiful. Like when I moved here, like in the middle of the night, I could bike the canals and it would be that quiet, and that's this quiet again. It's this kind of magical, yep. kind of invading kind of moment, this suggestion. And I think this is what this I, movie, I, I the movie came, also has. Yeah, that came up in the movie a lot, that he 
talked about the, 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 the sin of uh, tourism or the sin of exploration that we ruined the mountains by going there without a purpose just for leisure. Yes, exactly. For just for leisure, exactly. Then there's no like yeah. Sherpas wouldn't have traveled up the mountain if there wouldn't be it's these. A, it's a very Protestant uh, point of view. Yeah, but doesn't he also say something weird about pork, like that he's like uh, that there's like the dogs. Oh, yeah. Dogs were accepted like dogs were normal that they could travel with the humans that they could like coexist. But then to actually that they were starting to breed animals and then pork was the gravest sin. But then he doesn't really and then he skips that point and he goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th th this idea of, of uh, molding nature to your liking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but what's interesting about this type of movie is that it, it does make you feel like, oh, uh, the same thing for me when I first saw South Park. It's like there's nothing stopping me from making this except my own talent. When you, when you see a big Hollywood movie, you're like, I, I don't know the right people to make a Michael Bay film. Uh, but when you see South Park, it's like, oh, they use the same computer I do. I, if I if I was funny enough, I could make that. It's funny because it's like that's actually what I often say about like my attraction to the web, like to the early web, was that mm -hmm. when I graduated uh, art school, I was like in the video art department, and there was like this this whole thing of like having to be able to buy the the the, the right camera to broadcast on TV. So you would need to have the three CCD yeah. camera, the three CCD chip or whatever. And uh, it was an expensive camera. I never had that. And then and then suddenly there was a moment where I saw all these people just like upload from their crappiest cameras, but they were still able to upload. And they were making these really honest kind of videos and like they were documenting stuff they wanted to sell on eBay or... And then... Um, and that felt so pure in, in its existence. Like it was all these pretentious pretensions were removed like you didn't have to have this the perfect camera you're and the perfect about tripod really a vernacular video not narrative but just yeah exactly and then but then this kind of magic that there would be i wouldn't need to have this kind of uh hierarchical excess anymore i didn't need to know the right people and have the right camera and show certain the understanding of a certain uh idiom or a certain uh uh, yeah. language parlance or whatever and then and suddenly I could just broadcast or publish by my, on my own and then I could also find what was published or broadcast on the same conditions by others and I think this is it's true like that's kind of the magic of this movie too that you almost see how small the gesture is but like how powerful the the outcome yeah. can be yeah there's a story I'm a big fan of Herzog and uh, read books and interviews and there's some story in the beginning that he wanted to make a film but it had to be 35 millimeter, and he stole a camera somewhere but of course he's a man who is good at superlatives and we don't know if it's true but he thought 16 millimeter is for students and this he made a, a short film about uh, strong men not bodybuilders but these sort of weightlifters and uh, these people that do competitions in uh, lifting trees or something like that. Um, and it, it had to be 35 millimeter, but it seemed as his confidence over the years that it, he had made movies with a big budget and with actors that went to the... Then he was confident shooting things uh, on the crappiest cameras. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, I don't know. Have you seen a lot of his films? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, I've seen, I've seen, actually, I think I've seen the strong, I think I've seen, I'm always afraid that he made like 20,000 other movies I haven't seen, but I think I've seen a lot. Like, but this man, I yeah. think he just produces so much that there's like always something that I just didn't know that he did or, um, yeah, it yeah. seems like there's this treasure trove of, of movies waiting out there. And especially in these times when everybody's sharing so many movies, I'm thinking like, Oh my God, I only watched like 2% of all these great movies that are out there, let alone read all these books <laughs> that I still have to read. Yeah, but, and then you're just, you're tired and you want to binge watch some crap. Yeah, exactly. But then, um, yeah. I don't know, like, I mean, I've I've seen a bunch of his stuff, but then I think if I'm, like, for example, um, what's the movie again? Uh, Fitzgeraldo, you know, which is yeah. also this kind of like cinematic feat, right? Like that he he actually does all these things. Like, he actually does, like, bring the ship over the mountain. And he yeah, act- he didn't use a miniature. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and then it is about these kind of grand gestures. And, like, sometimes I could get, you know, now, for example, that the music became so... You know, of course, like, the music is, is, is beautiful, but it also becomes... After a while, when you've been watching this underwater footage for, like, a couple of minutes, and there's, like, this throat singing or other exotic music going on and then after a while I'm like yeah this is I mean it's so there's so much pathos and it's so aggrandizing or something of this I don't know sometimes I can uh, yeah it's 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 very operatic and or dramatic or baroque or, yeah. yeah yeah but it is interesting that uh, when you look back at the the genre of sci-fi that over the years it's just become grander and grander in its production and the the funny thing is that the effects age really badly i've always found that sci-fi movies are great when you first see them at the movies there's there's something about projection that the effects feel more convincing and then you see it at home later and maybe the screen is a bit too close to you so you see and five years later it looks really cheap and dated and uh and so there's something about the, that this movie is the polar opposite of that, that it would age well. So that brings me to another topic that I actually wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about this retrofuturism that was kind of in there. So you would like look back into with nostalgia on an earlier vision of the future. So you would, yeah, because yeah. for example, there, there, he also shows like space travel, like he talks about the future, but then he shows like contemporary uh, space travel. So he would show like a... Um, like a, spa- um, a NASA uh, space um, mission. Yeah, but like, a, what do you call this thing? The Challenger, not the Challenger that exploded. Um, the Voyager. Yeah, like the thing, the shuttle, the space shuttle. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the one that's that's always in space to send us images. He also refers to that, but then he also shows like the loading bay, I think, of of the space shuttle. But then, anyway, but then it becomes this kind of like because you're in the narrative you're already in the future and then you look back at like this kind of like uh almost like yeah and then it becomes a, a fictional documentary yeah exactly but then it also becomes this kind of endearing attempt to live in the future you know what i mean mm. so it becomes this kind of yeah, like yeah. we now understand for example like how it becomes charming to look at old computers or you would see yeah. early kind of like introductions to the web on american daytime tv and then it becomes very endearing to see how people try to grasp 
what this technology could mean or like how people became these evangelists of the internet or something. Well, now from this position of now everybody having, you know, maybe a, a different understanding of it, um, it becomes this. I, so this idea of retrofuturism, I think to me is still interesting, like how you'd want to believe in a kind of earlier, um, more positive vision of the future sometimes, you know? Yeah, I also think that the human memory works in a way that uh, the future is much scarier than the past, even if the future objectively is better than the past. So the the idea of uncertainty is just very stressful. And then if we look back at a period and uh, a lot of people, it, it's, it's I think it's a, a survival trait of the human brain that you... Uh, romanticize the past a bit even your direct past like you might have been stuck in traffic on vacation and then you look back and you're like oh that was really funny we saw this or that happen and yeah but then so there's something something comforting about the past true but then there's i think there's also uh something comforting of your vision of the future in the past so for example i would think mm. you know when i grew up 2015 was kind of like this magical number like it was a magical yeah. <laughs> number of the future, right? So, and then yeah. 2020 completely, you know, that was flying cars territory. Yeah. Even even 2000 felt very futuristic. Yeah. yeah, but then, I mean, sometimes, even, especially when I would talk to my mom, my mom would be like, okay, so this is the future now, so we're here now. And then, yeah. uh, and then sometimes certain things came true, right? Like, for example, I talked to uh, Bill Atkinson. Bill Atkinson was like a, actually uh, made hypercard for apple and made uh, whatever uh, mm -hmm. uh marching ants he also made the marching ants and yeah. uh, and the first uh, paint program yes mac paint and yeah. Uh, yeah. all the quick draw routines all the graphic routines on the early mac and anyway wonderful person I've, i'm i'm still very uh proud that i had the the the, the opportunity to meet him and um he uh, he also had like a uh, an idea to develop the iPhone, but like the idea of the iPhone before anything actually happened to ah, Apple. Yeah, and the then documentary. He, and then he left yeah. Apple, and then but then in his house he had like all these patents he had from Apple. But he left Apple to start this new company with a so you would have a machine in your pocket that could send each you could send basically messages from one machine to the other machine, and people could just travel with that machine. So basically... It was even before the Newton. I don't know if it was... I think so. Newton was when? I'm not sure, but it, the, I remember the documentary was like the, the greatest project that never happened or something, some title like that. Okay. Well, I haven't seen that documentary anyway, but like what I, I wanted to refer to is that he had like a... When I met him, he had like a... Uh, in his cabinet where there were all these with these patents waiting, he also had like a piece of wood, a black piece of wood. And I was like, why is that piece of wood there? And then he said that when the iPhone was about to come out, he actually saw the ads and he took the dimensions and he cut out a piece of wood and he cut out the screen grab that was there or the picture of the iPhone and he pasted it on this piece of wood. And then he carried it around in his pocket for like six weeks or something to feel what it would be like. Hmm. to have this kind of power in your... Before it was released. And that it was this kind of... And then he really talked about it like, this is the future. Like, the future is coming to you. There's so much, so many things happening. It's such a crazy thing that's happening to us as in humanity yeah. that we are now so... And then I realized, like, oh, 
my dad passed away in 1994 and I could never even I couldn't explain him what the what the difference no. is no. you know like I wouldn't know how I was like remember that computer yeah. but then mobile but then connected to I've everyone had, it's super I've had weird. several dreams where I'm sitting next to an old artist like uh, Dali or Duchamp and they want to know what the internet is and they're asking me to explain it and I'm like I don't want to deal with this right now and they're asking me for computer lessons so I think this retrofuturism is this moment where you would think like this fantasy that we had of what the web was of what the web was going to become so that basically yeah. the greatest moment of this iPhone is when he had it in his pocket when it was just a piece of wood and it was just potential and it was all this potential collected. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you would have yeah. these visions of like 2020 was so much better in 1985. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then like, I would yeah. think like you would, we would still think about like all the potential beauty that could happen. And I remember also like, I often think about like a thing that you told me in a conversation that you referred to a story. I think it was by Nikola Tosic or like a sci-fi oh the blog post that he wrote oh there was a blog post so it was like a yeah. if i remember it correctly it was about like a sci-fi story that was positioned a certain amount of time i don't remember when it was positioned in time but that the story just describes that nothing basically had changed so everything mm. stayed exactly the same but that became yeah, the yeah, sci-fi yeah. story where everything was the same i don't know these kind yeah. of to me these kind of ideas now especially with like these small changes in society, right? Like how society just changed in very small but very dramatic ways. And like now I'm thinking of like, when can I see my international friends again? When can we easily travel or congregate? When can we have like a conference again? When can we, you know, I never imagined that would happen. No, but the that's the weird thing with, with speculation is that we often think... Uh, Everyone has their own interpretation. So when the web started, people thought this is going to bring people together, and we will have a better, more empathy for people around the world. And uh, that's the view. If you if you want it to be that way, we didn't think, oh, this is going to uh, encourage populism and trolling and uh, things like that. Like no one who was in the early web thought that that would happen. Yeah. And so the, I understand this idea of the 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 fake iPhone in the pocket and the dream attached to it that is your dream. It's not how it will really go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then in, in Herzog's films, I think there's this general disappointment in humanity, which is a little bit simple in the sense that humanity is also a product of nature. So to say that uh, if, if a bird builds a nest in a tree, that's okay. But if humans build a city, then it's ugly. It's not pure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if it's just because of the scale of humanity, but uh, th there's a lot of anthills and bird nests around the world, but they, they are a part of nature and the cities are not. Yeah. I mean, it's like this kind of, maybe it's this German romanticism. Like I'm thinking of like, of him like walking through the mountains of Caspar David Friedrich and really enjoying the yeah. kind of, of, yeah this kind of romantic notion of like losing yourself as a human to nature or even like how he's portraying himself in these kind of in these battles like this t a total romantic yeah 
battle against the cinematic ex- industry or yeah but he's also an extreme traveler so he's he's guilty of that sin as well so he i i spoke to some people in iceland and their grandparents were talking about the first tourists and they, they were like aliens they, they came from germany and they they're just living their life in iceland and all of a sudden you see this person with a backpack wandering and you're not sure where they're going they'd never seen it and it, it feels like a Herzog film. It's like, what is this being on this planet? And Iceland does feel a bit like another planet. And then all of a sudden there's the German hiker. Yeah. But do you mean like he... Okay, yeah. Mm. In the 50s or in the 40s or something like that. Yeah, it's funny. Like Pora, for example. I went to Pora. So like the the holiday camp that uh, the Nazis built in uh, on the East Coast uh, or on the East Sea in uh, Germany. And that's where like mass... That's like one of the first kind of logistical systems for real mass tourism where thousands of people could come and like holiday on the sea. So it's basically giant rows of apartment buildings or like hotel buildings on the sea with a view of this the, the sea. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, and like as one of these first real mass tourism things so this organized kind of i don't know it's very it's very depressing at the same time so there's like i'm just thinking if it's connected to this yeah idea yeah for sure yeah. well there's something depressing about the the mass numbers of groups maybe that's what's the what's the tragedy so then, but then that doesn't exist when you're traveling alone then. So he's, he's living in this fantasy where he's the romantic explorer, like exploring like in the 1800s. But then in this movie, he yeah. also looks like he also criticizes that. He also criticizes that he people do something for fun. So maybe he sees his movies, his movies, of course, aren't fun. Like they could be, <laughs> you know, for him, it's an, it's a it's a task it's work it's labor it's almost like this kind of calvinist thing that he has to do yeah while for us we would maybe look at the movies as some kind of like you know funny intellectual entertainment yeah but maybe for him it's yeah. this thing that is much grander much bigger like this but yeah. do do you feel uh, like a i think this comes up on the podcast every now and then but there's sort of a hierarchy of content and that if you're not working, how do you spend your time? And that if you would read a piece of classic literature, you would feel proud about the time you spent. And if you binge watch a show that you actually don't like, but it's just in your queue, you feel kind of awful afterwards. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's why a lot of people need to regurgitate these kind of this awful content in like emphasizing why, even if it would be ironically, why it would be interesting or why they would watch it. Like I I catch myself watching really bad shows and then thinking like this is just anthropological research this is yeah. just like i'm just watching like just, how you want to know the time you live in yeah i want to know the time i live in i want to see how quickly shots get edited i want to see like how there was this for example there was a show called the circle on netflix and then uh and then it's basically like a bunch of people in a uh, building in their own apartments but then only talking to each other through chat but then they're actually dictating the chat so then the viewer gets to you know experience what they said so they're saying like they're dictating a message and then they say who to send it to it's an awful it's show. funny it's all the awful. movies you mention are reality now there's <laughs> a chat in our building also oh you oh of course yeah. it's true yeah yeah oh, yeah 
Yeah, so the, it is true. Like you could you could read Dostoevsky or Shakespeare right now, but maybe that show The Circle is actually more relevant to the time we live in. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I know that's true. But it's still. I want to come back to this idea that that I really like this. I always liked it within an artistic practice too. That you could make like a really minimal alteration. So in my, I think in my work, it's very like I would you know take a just a Google page and I would flip it around or something, you know? So there mm -hmm. would just be like a new vision on something. And yeah. Google already provides a new vision. So it's like a new vision of a new vision or like a uh, detour vision of like a vision. Anyway, but then this movie does that too. But then what I really like about this moment in time is that there's like, it feels like such a non-dramatic a non moment. Like everybody just basically, you know, like, if you're not uh, actually threatened by this disease physically, then there's a big chance that your life is potentially just like normal. You're just working at home. You have to improvise, you know, like there's a, but like a lot of things yeah. within society have changed in a very yeah, subtle, yeah, yeah. but yet dramatic way. And I always like this yeah. kind of almost like intervention in reality that makes everybody take a new position. Like, and that now I see any other media I see completely wildly differently. So, you know, I could... It's very strange now when you watch movies or TV shows and they go to a coffee shop and hang out with people. Exactly. And you look at it, it's like, is that ever going to happen again? Exactly, and they hug. Yeah, and I'm like, how the fuck so are you weird. hugging? You yeah. didn't, you're not family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're breathing near each other. Yeah. <laughs> or like, for example, yeah. in this movie, the guy, the scientist sneezed. And then I was like, what? You sneezed? Because <laughs> I'm so... I'm, I was biking around Amsterdam to my studio. And um, I don't know. I didn't even know if that was socially acceptable. And I thought, like, it should be. I'm alone. Like, I'm keeping distance. I'm actually going to a place where there's no one else. I could just... I need to work. Whatever. And then... Uh, but then I was biking around. And I was so afraid that I was going to sneeze from yeah. pollen yeah, or yeah. from something coming into my nose. And that everybody yeah. would just, like... But then even what would happen, yeah, nobody I, would come close. I have a friend who, who just, he has a cough. He's had it since he's a teenager. He just coughs very often. It's no big deal. But now he's afraid to go out because everyone looks at you like you're, you're evil. And, uh, yeah, so yeah. These, these kind of small changes or like now being able to watch any movie from the, from the past, seeing it in a completely different light. I think that's, I don't yeah. know, it's like a magical... But then we just have... Well, it, a friend of mine was saying, you know, if, if we are the generation that gets to witness the end of times, that's kind of special. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nobody's there to record it afterwards, so nobody's there to realize yeah. how special but it we're was. we're here for but the finale. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you would have to choose... Yeah. yeah, what would you do with, like, the vision? Yeah, that's an interesting question. If you would have to choose, would you rather be the first generation that before, <laughs> like, the dumb generation, basically, that didn't know about anything, had to learn everything or the, the last caveman. yeah the last generation yeah. Yeah. maybe i would want to be second last you know like the baby boomers yeah because then i would still have lived like a full life yeah. and then i i knew that i like but i had the full the full appreciation of like all the and and the realization the potential of all the generations before me but i didn't have to witness the end it, it, there's a, a blog, a publisher called McSweeney's, and they published this little article. Things are really bad now, but in a while, things will go back to being normal bad again. Yeah. And they write about like how there's now a sort of collectivism and a sort of, uh, especially in the U.S., that there's 
might be general health care for a year just to survive. And then after that, it'll just be back to normal. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. Imagine that, that there's like yeah. everybody takes care of each other and then like you can fly again and then it's back to normal. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and um, now there's a couple of themes in the movie, but so there's the, the idea of scale of the universe and the idea of, of innocence and, and uh uh, the the sin of ex exploration and leisure and um and then the idea of of aliens being losers and the the one of the things we didn't explain is that the the aliens it took them many generations to get here it's an incredible voyage beyond anything and then the humans try it and it's not working but they figure out the wormhole thing and all of a sudden they're at his home planet and he's really pissed he's like why didn't we figure out that trick and you guys cheated and he's looking at the, the human explorers enjoying the beauty of their weird frozen uh, liquid planet. And he's very homesick seeing the footage. Yeah, what is that about then in like in the perspective of like uh, of the disgust towards humanity? Because it's kind of it seems like it's almost like, a, you know, celebrating yeah, um, humans. Human ingenuity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a way, he's, he seems mad that they couldn't have come up with that. Yeah, the alien is mad, so it's like kind of an appreciation yeah. of like how yeah. how humans could potentially figure it out. Like, so a bright vision of the future that, uh, well, you know, the planet's yeah. going to collapse, but then we figure out wormholes, and then the planet can just like come back to normal again, and then it's all fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, do you see this, are there any other Herzog films that are relevant to, to discuss here? Mm. I'm I'm trying to think of which Herzog film was the 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 slickest production because this seems one of his rawest films. God, but this is this is exactly this moment. Like I can't figure out. Like I can't have like a almost like a, I have to pull up a page with all the mov all the movies he made. Like the internet, mm -hmm. didn't he make this recent internet movie? I couldn't finish that one. Lo and behold, yeah. did you finish that yeah. one? Yeah, I saw it in the theater. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but it, 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 there's another example. There's a the, the movie Little Dieter Needs to Fly, and then he made a film version of it with Christian Bale. That's more like a Hollywood film. So the one is more like a documentary. Yeah. And the Christian Bale film is more like a classic Hollywood action movie. Um, but then reading interviews and everything about it it's almost like the documentary is more fake than the than the hollywood version Herzog is known like for when he shoots a documentary to treat his interviewees as actors he's like say that again say it a little better let's record it again why don't you exaggerate it a little bit and yeah I'm just thinking, like, I'm actually just trying to pull up a list of all his movies. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, like, that must be way too much. Oh, my God. Do you ever get discouraged when you see someone else and you're like, why should I even try? Um, like, Herzog is such a superhero. Like, how can you make that many movies that are that counter to the whole uh, the whole world doesn't want you to make those movies it seems and somehow he's able to make a hundred of them i actually don't have that i actually have that maybe with bach or something 
that I listen to Johann Sebastian yeah. Bach, <laughs> and then I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, this is impossible. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, um, actually, no. Actually, I mean, I, 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 I. For me, no, that was I a big do part feel like a, is that there, that there are no heroes in front of you. So you're like, okay, I'll just try it. Nobody. Like when you start doing painting or cinema, you're like, oh, there's so many great ones. What what can I contribute? Yeah, but the nice thing is too that I feel like I could be this this dumb amateur with stuff. I'm also yeah. living in this yeah. in this time where I can have all these tools and I can just play around with all these tools and I can, um, you know, like I I can't live in that comparison at all. I think no, I'm never I, gonna I used be... to have that more. I, I'm a bit over it, and now I just see this part of why we do these reviews is it, it's a hobby and it's something on the side, and I'm I'm not jealous. It's not that I want to make movies, but I used to feel like okay. Uh, South Park is really funny and you don't need any budget to make it. Why can't I make something like that? That feeling, yeah. But that's something that you but that's something I feel like you could do, right? But then I feel like these amount of movies to me what it also means is that there's you know um not all the movies are uh I'm kind of I appreciate the fact that he would make so many movies because he doesn't he accepts the fact that he could make a bad movie and then he just tries yeah, again. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's true. And I yeah, feel like great. this is what I always also liked in having a, a big production, like a potentially a big production that you could just like, that it's not like I make a painting a year. No, I make it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I can make mistakes and I could also publish these mistakes. And I think that's also something that the web taught me. Like, for example, in yeah. the surfing clubs or like, for example, surfing club like Nasty Nets, I felt like we could publish sketches and then we could have a conversation around the sketch and that would be worth yeah, yeah. doing in public and not being like tiptoeing around the fact of like being afraid to publish something. And in that sense, like this is, he also has this kind of attitude. Like he Yeah, would, I, I, always, I always thought of that of like the importance of unimportant thoughts, that when you try to make a really genius point, you activate a certain part of your brain and it's less innocent. Whereas if you're just goofing around with friends it's another part of the brain that is also important yeah but then okay so when do you put this when is there a threshold there like for example us bantering together or or like talking together like this like when does it reach that moment when it's valuable enough to publish yeah you know or take yeah. some ask somebody's time to do that well i i, th I think that is a, the nice thing about podcasts that you you, when you write an essay, you're like, okay, what is my thesis? What am I trying to say? Make it as clear as possible. And then in the conversation, you can just wander. And uh, uh, it, it it feels, uh, I don't know, it feels very, people are willing to go with the mistakes and the hesitations, and it's fine. Mm -hmm. But it's also, yeah. so there's magic too in like, I think that's also nice because of knowing, not only knowing, you and Jeremy personally, but then also knowing your practice and then th knowing the kind of, you know, getting a deeper insight into people's considerations or the way they formulate, mm. you, the way you formulate your thoughts or like how you would position yourself or even, f even like hearing stuff in the background or something. To me, that's, it's also, so, it's also nice. Like I remember um, the magic of, of Delicious, for example, that you would, like yeah, the bookmarking yeah. service that, you know, sometimes people would bookmark really interesting research, but they would also bookmark a dentist. 
And I'd be like, oh, so that's why, <laughs> why would you go to that dentist over another dentist in your area? But it's, it became this kind yeah. of personal kind of diary thing where, I don't know, like just this, you become interested in other, other anecdotes around a person yeah. too, because you would want to understand. But then it, it, there is, yeah. there is the difference if whatever form your notes are, uh, if those notes are permanent or temporary, there's a big difference. So delicious disappears, and that was a moment. So it's uh, it's very hard to record. And then, if you go to the Van Gogh Museum or, or other places where they have a lot of his work, he made 1,200 paintings in 10 years, and yeah. I would say 70 to 75 percent of them, you could really see he couldn't find it. He was trying to find something and he couldn't. So it's it to me is very encouraging to see those that. Not every time he touched the canvas, it was pure genius. Sometimes he's muddling and it's just not there. And that to me is very encouraging to see. But the fact is that all his doubts are recorded forever in that, in that form. But if you're, if you're the way you operate is uh, in a social platform that disappears and links that are broken and et cetera, then uh, that, that is a very different thing. It is a different thing, but I'm also wondering, like, if he would go back and he would see, like, the the certain, the canon of his work, would he, you know, after a while you would also say, like, fuck it, scratch it, like, throw it all away. Right? Yeah, like, you yeah, would yeah. also think, like, there's this, there's also something worth, like, I remember listening to a podcast you guys did on the documentation of work, I think. Yeah. And then I think Jeremy had something with, like, that he that there was like these theories or in school that like, he wouldn't he wouldn't document things or um, yeah and I kind of he doesn't know, he doesn't record his performances so and I feel like there's like I I almost I always felt like if I would do a performance I wanted to do something that or trigger something in other people that they would want to document it that would be the best mm -hmm. solution mm -hmm. but yeah. um, I feel like there is this kind of honesty that somebody else, you know, you provide something and then somebody else has to contextualize it or like create this value for it. It's not, yeah. I can't always like, um, in this weird, weird moment where you're actually asking attention for a story that you're telling, you can't always like provide the significance of that story too. You know, you would want to tell the story, yeah. and of course, you have the uh, you would want it to have a certain significance, but you can't always provide significance. So sometimes you have to depend on like another infrastructure, and that could be a gallery, but then on the web, it could be people that comment, it could be uh, a content people that, that share you, the work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this is something where I don't know, like a, um, after a while, that's, that's definitely something that that is new. That this idea of the accidental genius that someone makes a funny track on YouTube and is, is famous the next day, instead of the classic A uh, and R manager that goes to a club, discovers a band, and they take two years to record an album and it's promoted. And now it's just like, well, I don't know. I was messing around with GarageBand. It just happened. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things I, I wanted to talk about in the movie, uh, David Lynch in an uh, interview talked about this uh, film analogy that he calls the eye of the duck. So if you draw a, a silhouette, the outline of a duck, and then you have to choose where you put the eye, 
it really changes. A duck could look retarded or completely fresh and normal and energetic, depending on where you put the, the, the two dots of the eyes. Yeah. Like, it's really important. Way. And he talked about that most movies have a scene that he calls the eye of the duck. And uh, I think in this movie, visually, it's the, the underwater scene where they're scuba diving and trying to go into the light. And if you recall some of his other movies, um, for example, the the vampire movie that he made um, with the, with Klaus Kinski, there's a scene where you see a bat flying, and it's a very beautiful aesthetic shot. Yeah. And there's he made a movie about uh, skiing, and it has this opening shot, this very beautiful shot of somebody jumping off of this of a cliff. Um, but what's interesting to me is that the hour and a half around that shot is is very important. It's kind of the difference between video art. Like that that one shot just wouldn't be as interesting if it didn't have the hour and a half around it. That's mm-hmm. maybe the difference between cinema and video art. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're following. So you mean what like I'm like a bill? Yeah, like a, I'm so trying to f- understand. Like like for example, Bill Viola piece is like just the one yeah, shot. Yeah, exactly. Like he ju- he just shoots the one shot, yeah. Yeah. And then and without then like, the hour and a half around it and the build up. But then often it's like so the Bill Viola shot is like a very dramatic shot, right? Like and it's also like awfully in slow motion. I hate it actually. But um then Yeah, and it's like uh, scenes from the Bible or something. Yeah, recent pieces, yeah. And then okay, so then um but then I had it with... Um, but Bill Viola is exactly what I mean, yeah. I mean, I've had it for a long time that I would look for in a movie and you would see such a remarkable scene and then you would think, like, this scene couldn't happen if you hadn't seen uh, the whole story before this. Like, you couldn't accept this. But you, c- I could imagine that the director or the person that wrote the movie just thought of that scene and like, thought that that scene would be so cool and then, like, designed and... Uh, created the whole movie around yeah it. exactly yeah like the the stories with blue velvet that he just started with this idea of uh, finding an ear in the grass in a human ear yeah and then he built a movie around that yeah yeah so like so basically what you're saying is like you could imagine that herzog had this shot of like going through this hole in the ice and then imagining if you would yeah. travel between worlds through that yeah, yeah 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 okay yeah, yeah and and that it, and that that um, the way a, uh, a painter or photographer thinks in in a single image and not in a sequence, yeah. And that somehow, uh, in video art, if you would just have that shot of the people scuba diving towards the light, you'd be like, uh, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. And then because of all the beef around it, uh, yeah, all the meat of the movie around it, it's very different. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, I, it, maybe that's something that um, a lot of our peers work with software to generate images, and there's yeah. a lot of fun in in generating images and that whole ritual of research around it. But then in the gallery, the viewer is presented with the result and not with the process, and uh, that's maybe something. I don't know the answer to that, but when you just see the image, you don't have all the excitement of what happened before. It's a different thing, but uh... no, I understand the analogy. I do, I do think that then sometimes in my work it would also be like people would want to make an exhibition and that they would want to explain certain things that I don't want to explain, 
but they feel yeah, like they would yeah. need to explain that so people visitors would understand the, the gesture uh, completely or in a would better understand the gesture um like for yeah. example that yeah. i the facebook army i made so then people would want to explain and i'm i'm not interested in explaining that a, a facebook account works better if you attach a phone number to it and that a phone number can be connected to a sim card you know like i don't feel that's part of my work to explain that like how that technically works no. but then people do yeah. want to see that as a part of the work and I think within maybe within yeah. Herzog being a documentary maker too, or like trying to under, explain these kind of things and making them accessible, or kind of disclosing that kind of information, maybe you know this is for him just like a beautiful fictional documentary, you know, uh, but it's yeah. still using the same techniques. He's just explaining how all of that happened, but then he just created a fictional story, and he's still explaining everything. And I think sometimes in a work. Sometimes you would see it in exhibitions um, that there's a work and then you see another room, like especially in museums, like grand institutions or something that are are putting a certain work into a canon um, because they've been accepted or if they've traveled or there's an histor art historical significance to a piece. But then you see the piece itself and then you go to another room and then you see all the sketches to that piece. Have you been in yeah. exhibitions like that that you would just like, and then you yeah. would just like, and or, then it's completely or, or even, demystified. Yeah, yeah. So then, to me, this yeah, is really. And, and, but not only then, also art history becomes that build up. Yeah, but the, it never the, works for me. It never works. Were. It never works for yeah. me. Like it does work for me. For example, mm. I've been in exhibitions that I would be like, "Ah, oh, this work fucking sucks," and then somebody else was like, "Well." But if you would see it in this moment in time when it was created, that this was one of the first gestures or this was the first time that this material was created and it was first presented there and that became such an importance and then there was... I would be able to re like understand it in a different light, but I always hate it when there's like an exhibition yeah. showing it to you like that. Like there's, for example, yeah, yeah. maybe that's what you like about Van Gogh's work too, that you see the mistakes or like, for example, how... Mondrian is showing his work only Dutch artists of course Mondrian <laughs> yeah. is showing his work in, or he's showing his work his work is shown in Den Haag so you see him from from a tree to the full abstract and you yeah. see the road travel That's a, it's a beautiful way to access his work um, mm -hmm. and to appreciate the full abstract at the end yeah. uh, but I don't the, 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 I don't think that the, he the would have contradiction there I'm just trying to say, I'm, sorry, yeah. I'm just trying to say, like, I don't think he, uh, it was his responsibility, like, although he told the story in his work, it wasn't his responsibility to make that exhibition. Somebody yeah, else made yeah. that exhibition and disclosed it within his work or with his work. But I don't necessarily think that you always need to be your own didactical interpreter. So you, or interpreter, sorry, that's yeah, Dutch yeah, yeah. direct translation. So, yeah, I, yeah. I'm thinking we're in an interesting threshold or an interesting moment in time when things could turn um, more, let's say, interesting again, also within an art historical perspective. You know, like maybe, you know, like more it's... More urgent? A, not necessarily more urgent because, like, for example, the true urgency of climate change maybe, you know, alters a bit because there's less flying now, but it's still there. And, um, yeah. you know, every, when everything goes back to normal, we'll try to catch up. 
and fly double as much, but um, <laughs> there's like a, it's still, I don't know, like there's there's still this urgency, but I think that there's like this radical shift in seeing how society can change or how you can uh, experience daily life from a completely different perspective and like how yeah. you're completely differently positioned in the world from if it's in quarantine or if it's like uh, even like all the media changed all these ah, that's a point i also want also wanted to make that there's like i often think about the magic of tv or of movies that there's i always loved uh, movies and tv for the fact that people would um would something very complicated could happen but an episode would still just end and a story would just still end like there was um mm -hmm. while my life was never that bite-sized you know like i could have uh certain traumatic experiences that could last for years or i could you know have arguments that lasted okay. for yeah yeah for weeks but like in tv it was always very understandable and bite-sized and there's like something very magical to that that you could explain it and you can package it and then it's there but now i think because for example watching late night tv shows becoming very improvised and at home and so yeah. i've been watching these jimmy fallon yeah. shows like that he was ma he's making yeah. from his house and then i'm thinking like oh could have this could have been better this could have been like this or this could have been like that anyway but i still think that there's such a uh ultimate change in like how we regurgitate culture and how we see public life and the that i think i think this could be a very interesting time in like how people view media and like how they view their own position in media and how much they potentially even long for larger gestures or like these kind of bigger societal events that you know that that actually yeah you know the dutch king it's, for it's example, hard to really say that it. if if there's really a, a vaccine if think how how fast things go back to normal if or if people really Like in the 70s, there was a shift from cities to suburbs in the U.S. And people were like, cities are dirty, they're full of crime, let's get out of there. And then 20, 30 years later, everyone slowly moved back to the city as much as possible. Um, so this is this great work-from-home experiment, and we might find that working from home is more efficient and that uh, 70% of the workforce can be done from home, and that would be a huge shift. Yeah, so I feel I feel guilty now for the fact that I like Amsterdam like this, right? Like nobody's making <laughs> yeah. money and like, but I love it. And then there's it's like, like the a, 80s, yeah, yeah. But then it's well less graffiti, uh, less interesting. But then there's like, but it's so boring. And like maybe well, that's give what it I, a few weeks. Yeah, but I love the fact that it's finally boring. Maybe I want life to be. I was well, I do want life to be more boring. Yeah, but um, yeah, I think that there's like a. a a moment when if everything returns to normal that how do we look back on this period would it, it almost feels like dreamlike sometimes yeah you know, that you, i think there would be huge uh, corona nostalgia yeah exactly and i think this corona nostalgia could have an ef effect on like how we view media and how we view yeah like a movie or like maybe for example these superhero movies like will either become even more important or we I could also completely imagine that they become kind of misplaced, you know, that they become kind of um, uh, nobody, maybe even more people want that kind of 
a communal yeah. uh, uh, distraction. But maybe I could also completely imagine that people kind of want this this brutal honesty again that we had in these couple of months where everybody had to, you know, not shake each other's hands and not hug and follow these really weird social construct things to be able to save your grandparents. In, I guess in a way, Asia is ahead of the curve because they had SARS and MERS and uh, they dealt with it a few times and they're very good at... Uh, hygiene and public uh, control and uh, uh, etc so I would think if you want to know what's going to happen you should look there hmm. I, I mean for my travels in Japan everybody wears face masks anyway already yeah yeah but that's like an, I'm just thinking like how they would relate to media right like well, media is more yeah. extreme. Well, it, it, there, there, there's, there's things in, in Asia that there's, uh, for example, YouTube channels of people eating so you can eat with them. Oh, and they, right. they just do this thing where they sit in front of the camera and go yummy, 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 and then just eat 12 kinds of fried chicken. And, uh, and that's a communal experience. Actually, I would like love to tell you one more beautiful story, which you probably know, because we, uh, you pointed me to a hairdresser a barber, actually, in uh, yeah. the basement of the Okura Hotel in Amsterdam. If you're ever in Amsterdam and you're male, because he's a barber that only uh, cuts male hair, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, please visit him because it's he's a... It's a men's barber, yeah. Yeah, so it's a, a, a... I don't know, it's a remarkable experience. You're alone in the, in the, in the shop. Anyway, um, it's. I've been going there... Uh, for the last couple of years and um, he actually he showed me a video that was made after uh, the earthquake and the Fukushima disaster mm. and it's like a movie which there was also a cartoon made but it's a it's a it's a song uh, flowers will bloom tomorrow and that's a translation in English of course but then there's a beautiful animation with this and I would maybe I don't know maybe you can include it in the links or something but that's yeah. one of the most beautiful things I've seen in a long time. And that's also this kind of communal. It was designed to be this kind of communal experience and this way to give hope and like to deal with all their losses and the personal losses and actually all the people that have passed away. But Yeah, that is very hopeful. They really bounce back pretty quickly. But there's like this, this injection of like, you know, what like now people are looking for too, like these kind of communal experiences again that are giving a, a positive vision of the future again um yeah 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 maybe a, a renewed trust in science yeah that would be beautiful right that would be nice <laughs> yeah if science isn't compared <laughs> to religion anymore yeah that yeah. would be wonderful oh well let's hope for the best then we'll do it together Rafael. yeah well um Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for, uh, the, the, it was a complete honor and uh, I'm very uh, proud to be yeah. a part of this. Well, uh, yeah, we see this as a public service, a, a little <laughs> bit of distraction. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. The, see you all next week. This was episode 99. Uh, next week is uh, our centennial. Bye-bye. Bye, Raphael. Bye.